Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Sarah, is this your car? Yes, yeah, it is. Sarah, you can't park here. Yeah, I know, but I I really had to. No, you didn't. You're parked illegally. Beth, (laughs) you don't understand. I couldn't park in my spot. It isn't safe. I I couldn't keep driving. I was running out of gas. My husband needs a doctor. I'm going to stop you right there, Sarah. Everyone has a sob story. I have one too. Do you know how many people are parking illegally right now? It's out of control. It could cause an accident. It could take this spot from the person who paid for it. I could write a real sob story about the damage you parking here might do. But I don't mean to do any damage. I'm just... I'm sorry, I need to park here right now. I will move as soon as I can. You won't, because you don't care about anyone but yourself. That's what illegal parking is. It's selfishness. If you cared about anyone else, you'd find a legal space. Beth, I would love to find a legal space. I thought if I parked here, I could explain the problem and you would help me figure out what to do. It's not my job. Your problems are your problems. I have plenty of problems of my own. But Beth, if you just let me park here, I will do anything to make it up to you. I can do all kinds of good things for you to show you that I care about the other people here. How do I know that you didn't park here to rob a bank or steal from the nice people who've parked where they're supposed to? Rules are rules, Sarah, and they're rules for a good reason. Beth, I don't have any other place to park. What happens now? Oh, you're going away for a long time. Are those your kids in the car? They're coming with me. What? Why would you take my kids? Well, you're under arrest, and I've got to do something with these kids. You're arresting me and taking my children for parking illegally? Rules are rules. You should have thought about this before you parked here. This is what's happening in our country right now. It is not nuanced. It is not complicated. It is wrong. And it requires action. Call your representatives today. Tell them to stop separating families at our borders. 
This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to start the show a little differently today because there's just not a lot of analysis to do about separating families at our borders. It is on our minds right now. We're posting about it on our social media channels. And we hope that all of you will join us in contacting our representatives to stand up and say that this is wrong. So we are going to talk a little bit today about some listener feedback about the summit with North Korea. And then we will share my conversation with Jamie Kerchick about a book that I am completely geeking out over. This is just like a happy geography and history nerd fest for me, and I hope that you enjoy it too. And I think it's very relevant to the North Korean summit, to what happened at the G7, and to kind of the nationalism that is sweeping the United States and Europe in some very important and frightening and historically challenging ways. So before we start, I wanted to do a slight clarification to my Pride Month moment on Bayard Rustin. Fred emailed me, and he said that it's important to note that President Truman, not FDR, integrated the U.S. Armed Forces in 1948. Bayard Rustin and his co-organizer, A. Philip Randolph, were requesting both integration of the military and integration of the jobs within the military industry. And President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8802 in 1941, prohibiting discrimination in the defense industry under contract to federal agencies. So that's why they called off the march. I didn't mean to imply that FDR also integrated the armed forces. That was Truman. Also, he said, the second is when you said the 1963 March on Washington was the first March on Washington for change. There were a few prior to this, including a women's suffrage march in 1913. Small, by comparison, maybe 5,000 people, but witnessed by half a million. The Klan in 1925, 50 to 60,000 people. And the bonus Army March of 20,000 World War I vets in 1932. So as always, it's never quite as simple, but I was trying to um, emphasize her point what a big deal this was because it was such a huge crowd. But thanks for the clarification, Fred. Appreciate it. We also got an email from Sarah about our conversation about style versus substance in connection with President Trump and the G7. And I think Sarah makes a really interesting point about gut instincts. Sarah gets very frustrated when people talk about gut instinct as their driver. She said, I don't think it's productive at all to look at this as a legitimate style. Emotions can be a good motivator and can lead to empathy or at least considering the feelings of others. It can lead people to help those who are suffering. It can make for a motivating speech. But with Trump's level of ego, this emotional style is not reaching outside himself. It's about his emotions and how people make him feel. That's how children act, not adults, and certainly not leaders. And then here's where I think she she gets into something really important. Although given my experience, it makes my skin crawl when people say they rely on their gut. I understand that sometimes people have feelings that they can't explain, and following those feelings can help them avoid danger or do things that make them happy. But gut feelings are not always correct. It's dangerous to regularly base decisions on feelings that can't be explained, especially in a leadership position. To me, gut feeling is an innocuous code word for prejudice. For a non-political example, go to LinkedIn. There are many articles being shared about the issues with the hiring process, including the harm gut feelings can have in hiring decisions. Mm -hmm. It can lead to charismatic but unqualified people being hired and prevents qualified but different people from being hired. It is a roadblock on the way to workplace diversity of thought or ethnicity. Beth, I imagine you'd be familiar with this issue in HR. Gut feelings are a personal issue to me because I know many people on the autism spectrum, mostly on the high-functioning end. 
I have some autism traits as well, enough that it's something I need to compensate for daily. One of the regular struggles we have is coming off as socially awkward. We have odd mannerisms, odd speech patterns, pedantic language, struggle with eye contact, and interesting ways of explaining ourselves. These easily trigger a lot of negative gut feelings in others who aren't familiar with autism. And I think that that is an important point about the role that intuition plays in decision-making at all levels. And I do think that the higher your position in leadership, the more important it is for you to validate those gut feelings in as many different ways as possible. I thought that was such an insightful observation that, yes, there are times when our gut and our emotions are helpful. One of my favorite phrases is that emotions are just data. Like I always say, your emotions are relevant, but they're not always reality. And I thought the hiring and the different ways in which people behave, and then we use our gut to justify our uncomfortableness with their difference or whatever that is. I I just thought it was all so insightful. What I think is really important in relying on your intuition in a helpful way, but not allowing it to eclipse your judgment, is to always keep in mind what your motivating factor is. So if I'm sitting across from someone in an interview and I find them to be a challenging personality, I have to ask myself, is my gut telling me this is a challenging personality because there's something really wrong here? I had one of these experiences, you know, where I just had a sense that a person was dangerous, right? And it's hard to ignore a sense that someone is dangerous. And so then your risk calculus is, if this person were really dangerous, what would I do? And then I think you also have to say, is this person just challenging in a way that makes me uncomfortable? Well, my discomfort is not on the rubric for good hiring decisions, right? And so I I think just really, I think we need to listen to our intuition and we also need to fact check it and validate it and push ourselves past just that gut instinct and into what am I trying to do here constantly? Well, and even think about police officers, right? So police officers are trusted with our safety. I mean, that's the most important thing. That's their primary purpose. And they don't teach police officers, trust your gut, act accordingly. Like (laughs) That's not what they teach. Like the professionalization of police forces is all about moving past that adrenaline dump, being able to see clearly through all those gut instincts and those emotions and not to escalate a situation. Like that's that's the whole like sort of primary purpose of their training these days. When you look at a professional police force, I've like learned this from our own police force. That that's not it's not like they're like, like I said, wait for the adrenaline dump and then tell exactly what your gut tells you to do. <laughs> that's not what they tell police officers to do, even in situations where you feel like you're in danger. There's really important safety trainings that you can even learn in your own sort of personal safety lives and in schools and in employment to do not necessarily what your gut tells you to do because you could put yourself in further danger. I've had two situations recently where I thought that someone was about to pull out a gun. Mm. And I think that that is just because I have been living in the news so much. I've been thinking a lot about school shootings and, and our gun issues in general. And so that's where my gut is right now, right? right. My, my gut is storing some fear for me. And in both of those situations, I felt that instinct and I did not change my behavior. Both times I was in a car. It would not have been safe for me to adjust my behavior in any way. 
And so I just kept driving. And in both situations, I was wrong about what was happening. And I was grateful to be wrong. And it still took me several minutes to get back to like a normal breathing pattern and and to calm down a little bit. And and that's what I think. Like you you have to just hear yourself out. It's not wrong to feel whatever you feel, but then you've got to question it. And it is concerning, I think, that we have a president right now who Mm -hmm. is so in love with his own intuition that he's unwilling to to validate it, especially from a diversity of sources. I've said this before on the podcast, the most important thing you can have in any leadership position, and that's if you're a teacher or the president of the Chamber of Commerce or a governor or whatever, the most important thing you can have around you are people who disagree with you a lot because that's how you navigate your own gut and your own ego. But that's the thing. It's when you were talking about what's your motivation, his sole and complete motivation is himself. You know, it's what assures my legacy, what keeps my campaign promises. What it, It's all about how people see him. It's not about how does this affect our relationship with our allies? What if I'm wrong? What if I went, what if, sh- how should I adjust my um, actions or behavior based on some factors I'm not, maybe not considering right now? One of our friends of the pod, Pam, sent me this quote that I had missed in the New York Times article about his press conference where he said, I think, honestly, I think he's going to do these things, Trump insisted. I may be wrong. I mean, I may stand before you in six months and say, hey, I was wrong. He paused a moment, realizing how out of character that would be. I don't know that I'll ever admit that, he added, but I'll find some kind of an excuse. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Um, and that's the thing I, that I was about to say, that in in another world, we might be accused of playing armchair psychologist by interpreting his motivation, but he tells us. Yeah. He said on Twitter this morning that polls are looking great with North Korea leading the way. Oh, my God. He doesn't leave anything to the imagination. So no. this, this is what he's saying is his motivating force. And it's all very, very simplistic. Did you see the video that he played for Kim Jong-un? I haven't. I can't bring myself to watch it. I'm just going to be really the trailer, the trailer of what could happen. The trailer. So I can't. I just can't. I can't. I literally can't do it. Somehow at this summit, someone in the United States government created what looks like a movie trailer about what the future for North Korea could be. And it's lots of shots of the president and Kim Jong-un, like waving to adoring fans, I guess, and economic prosperity in North Korea. And, and it's it's sort of like a bad motivation video that you might play at a corporate event. But in the middle of a conversation about nuclear disarmament, it's really disturbing. Now, I understand that if you think the president is awesome and you think what happened in North Korea is awesome, and I will get to the parts of it that I think are awesome because I do think there are some parts of it that are good, that you're going to say, just let him do his job. He knew, he, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to play to Kim Jong-un. It still <sighs> matters historically, right? It, it matters how we approach these things. And that video to me is a disturbing indicator If you put it alongside similar pieces of propaganda throughout history, it is a disturbing Mm -hmm. indicator of where we are heading. I wasn't fully prepared for how affected I was by seeing the president of the United States next to a dictator we know murders his own people. It was really difficult and upsetting. And I just thought, what happens when? 
Kim Jong-un decides to not keep up his end of the bargain, not that there was much end of the bargain for them, what if something truly terrible happens? What if he drops a bomb, a nuclear bomb, on South Korea or Japan, and now we have this imagery of this already criminal leader standing next to our president? Historically, 50 years from now, what will that look like? It's really difficult to think about. And to do it all, to give the one bargaining chip he really wanted, which was standing next to the president on the world stage, with very little in return to say, oh, we'll stop practicing war games, which is a term the Chinese and the North Koreans use, using their propaganda terms to prevent drills You know, I think that it's easy to sort of blow those off or they're just practices. But Jason Baker, friend of the pod, he said, for sure, big and small, they happen all over the world every day. Sure, they cost money, but not as much money as major wars. Part of large scale exercises is readiness. But an equally important part is the strength of allies that they demonstrate. So now we're going to give up drills in case they don't keep up what, again, what very little they promised. Then we will have not practiced how to defend ourselves or our allies in that situation. And all we have is. No practice, no readiness, and images of our president standing next to him. I hope I'm wrong. I hope he doesn't. And I hope this is all he wanted and everything. I mean, I don't even know what best case scenario. His, he's still a dictator. So it's just, it's like, I feel like, is this what it would have looked like if FDR had gone and met with Hitler? Knowing, knowing what we know now? Well, I 100% think that FDR would not have had anyone doing advance work that involved the placement of the American flag next to the Nazi flag. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do not believe that FDR would have ended the conversation by saying, Hitler, great guy, tough, so sometimes tough, but a good guy. And we have a very special relationship. And that's that's what I want to say. I listen, I applaud diplomacy. I I applaud some risk taking occasionally in diplomacy. And I think that sometimes you do have to to make a calculated gamble that spending face-to-face time among leaders is the right thing to do, even when that is a very hard decision. So in some respects, I think having the two leaders sit down together and start to develop a relationship is is a good, worthy, noble pursuit. But you can certainly do that without all of this fanfare. And without lavishing praise on this person with whom you had to negotiate the return of the remains of political prisoners. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just this is not a real estate deal. And I'm I'm really disturbed by the way that the president handled this. Mm. I hope that it is effective. I hope that it leads to sustained peace for a very long time. I hope that somehow it eventually frees the people of North Korea from this oppressive regime. But boy, that's got to be a long play from what we saw this week. And I hope that we don't ever need the support of major allies or the trust of major allies in the recent future, because all the steps we've taken up until this point have been total and complete disregard for those relationships. That's the other thing, right? You None of this happens in a vacuum. And any praise of the president's actions require you to look at those actions in a vacuum. It's not just that this week 
he signed an agreement that no lawyer would have ever allowed a client to sign, I don't think. A lawyer worth their salt, right? Because it's so mm-hmm. nonspecific. It's so, there's just nothing in it that is binding. So and he, it's not just that he did that or just that he lavished praise on Kim Jong-un or just that he offended all of our allies at the G7 or just that he blindsided South Korea by promising kind of off the hip to stop these military exercises. It's that all of those things happen together while the events that we described in our opening are happening here in the United States. While our Justice Department, our Department of Homeland Security, have decided to separate families to warehouse children in an old Walmart. While sound bites are coming out of ICE agents telling people that there is no such thing as family here. It's, you have to look at that entire picture. And, and I'm just not willing to give him credit here or there without keeping that entire picture in focus. So thinking about the big picture and especially putting events in historical context, I was excited to get to sit down and talk with Jamie Kerchick this week about his book, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age, which we will share with you right after the short break. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. 
What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Jamie Kirchick is a visiting fellow in the Center on the United States in Europe and Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution. A widely published journalist, he is the author of The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. As I shared with Jamie during our discussion, when I opened this book up and saw that it began with a map, I was like, this is my person. I'm really excited about this book. He's working on his second book right now, A History of Gay Washington, D.C. for Henry Holt. Jamie has covered the fraudulent 2010 presidential election in Belarus and the Libyan Civil War. In the United States, he broke the story of inflammatory content in Ron Paul's newsletters. And his book about Europe is one of the smartest books I've ever read. I've marked up every page of it. You'll hear my kind of enthusiastic fangirling in this interview because I really think this is an important book that's come out at an important time where so much of it is relevant. Jamie is a leading voice on American gay politics and international gay rights. He is the recipient of many awards and distinctions, and he was an absolute pleasure to talk with. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jamie. So I'm here with Jamie Kerchick and Jamie, I can't stop talking about your book because I feel like it says, hello, everyone. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) And if we would think for a second about history and geography, the mistakes of the present would be apparent to us. Do you feel prescient watching the news unfold right now? Well, thank you for having me. And I'm uh, delighted that you um, started the interview that way because uh, I think his- history is very important in my book. And it's really, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of history. That's what I studied in college. And that's why I wrote the book. And I think every every chapter is about a different country. And it's all traces back to history and, and not understanding or not learning uh, the, the lessons of history. And I do think that in many ways, um, what we're seeing in in Europe, even in the United States, are are the return of forces that we had thought were laid to rest. So, you know, if you went back to 1989, that momentous year um, when the Berlin Wall collapsed, I think we had three assumptions about the world and Europe in particular. One, which was that you know democracy had had triumphed and there would be no ideological competitor to democracy. Uh, the second would be that um, capitalism, you know, market, liberal democratic market regulated capitalism was the best um, economic means of managing our affairs. And also that there would be an era of perpetual peace in Europe, that never again would there be uh, another war on the continent. And I think it's in the past several years we've seen all of those assumptions collapse. I mean, clearly with um, democracy, we now have. Um, the leader of of Hungary, Viktor Orban, you know, openly saying that the era of liberal democracy is over. 
which is not and not to mention uh, the rise, you know, far away of of, of China um, as a as a country. And this ties into the second assumption. You know, we assume that with capitalism um, becoming uh, more accepted and winning out over Marxism, that that capitalism would somehow transform China into a liberal democratic country. And we're seeing this sort of nightmarish. Um, you know, mirror image of that, where China has embraced this sort of ruthless capitalism, but it's actually becoming more authoritarian. Um, and, you know, to go back to Europe, uh, you know, not only is capitalism taking a hit, what with the financial crisis, but we're now seeing uh, real, you know, ideological challengers uh, to capitalism, the rise of a, of a sort of left-wing neo-Marxist uh, kind of, you know, populist movement um, in countries from Greece to Italy to Great Britain. And then third and finally, on the issue of security, um, you know, just a couple of years ago, if you had told anyone that there that, you know, that Russia would be invading uh, Eastern Europe again and annexing territory, uh, they would have looked at you as if you were crazy. But that's that's just what's what's happened. And there's there's a war going on still on on the European continent in, in Ukraine, where over 10,000 people have been killed, where the, the first armed annexation of territory in Europe since World War Two was perpetrated in the annexation of Crimea and was undertaken uh, under the same pretext as Adolf Hitler's uh, seizure of territory in the years leading up to World War II, which is basically, you know, inventing claims of oppression against your ethno-linguistic comrades and then using that as justification to absorb territory. So, yes, I think, you know, I don't this is not this is not something that, that I like to feel prescient about. But, yes, I do feel somewhat prescient. So I would like to ask you about what just unfolded with the G7, given all of that context. Mm. In your book, uh, I, w I read with interest the discussion of NATO's formation. Mm. And you quoted the first secretary general of NATO as saying that the goal is to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans mm. down. <laughs> and I could not get that out of my mind watching the G7. And I just wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite, isn't it? We, right. have Donald Trump, we have Donald Trump wanting to get the Russians in. The way he's behaving might see America leave it. No, I think Donald Trump's behavior at the G7 was really per perplexing, uh, was very counterproductive. I mean, this is a dangerous world we live in now. And the United States has many great challenges and adversaries and enemies. Um, and Donald Trump recognizes that, and certainly on you know on, on the issue of Iran, he can speak very clearly about the threat that Iran poses, and China as well. And I'm just not sure how he expects to deal with these problems without our friends. And why would you needlessly antagonize our allies? I mean, certainly we have differences with our allies at certain points on certain issues. There's nothing wrong with that. That's to be expected. Um, but you work with your allies to achieve things. And I think the problem that I've always had with Donald Trump is that he doesn't seem to have any understanding of what the use and utility of alliances are for and that they actually make America stronger. He doesn't he seems to think that allies are a burden. And, you know, the, the United States has been very skilled since World War Two. We've been very adept at forming alliances. I mean, there's no country in the history of mankind that has had so many alliances as the United States. And I'm talking about, you know, countries that I, either we have security commitments to, you can look at the NATO countries, you can look at countries that we have treaty obligations with, South Korea and Japan, or just countries that, you know, we generally refer to as allies, who we cooperate with, who we 
um, who we trade with, who we have friendly diplomatic relations with. There's no country, there's no world power that has had such an, a vast network of alliances as the United States. And it's been to our benefit. It's ensured a world of peace and prosperity that has, that has allowed the United States to become the richest and most powerful country on earth. That's because we have these alliances, because we have, we've been able to keep the peace in regions of the world where we don't need to get involved in wars, okay? The fact that, we, the fact that we've kept the peace in Europe for the past 75 years, not only through NATO, but through the EU, through our alliances, through our trade, um, that's been a great benefit to us. That's, that's helped us reach the place that we are. And I don't, I don't think Donald Trump has any appreciation for this whatsoever. Which is so strange because a thought that I kept having throughout your book is the recognition that World War II is not that long ago. No. It seems like ancient history, but especially when I was reading about Hungary and the importance of Hungary's role in World War II and sort of revising that history, the way that that plays into the current power structure, it was such a reminder that we talk about World War II in America as though it were another lifetime, and it really is very present in all the dynamics unfolding right now. Yeah, certainly. It's within living memory for many people. And the way that the history of World War II, I mean, no, look, in, in, in just a couple of years in the future, you know, there's not going to be any more Holocaust survivors. There's not going to be many veterans left, which is why it's important to preserve this history and to understand it, because we're no longer going to have people who actually were there witnessing these events. And the way in which you know history can be manipulated, like you mentioned in, in Hungary, I mean, it's hard for me to think of a worse example of this than say in Russia today, where uh, the history of you know the gulag and the Soviet Union and all the human rights abuses that were committed under Stalin um, has been just completely uh, whitewashed. Um, it's been forgotten. Uh, quite on, on the contrary, actually, they, Stalin is venerated as a great hero. And that certainly plays a role, I would argue, in, in why Russia is such an aggressive um, problem that we have to deal with. You know, it's not like Germany. You know, after the war, Germany uh, embarked upon a very, um, you know, serious process of coming to terms with its past. Uh, and it made amends for its past. It, it paid restitution to Jews and to the state of Israel and to the countries that it had invaded its victims. It, it, it built museums across the country. Uh, you know, German school children, they visit concentration camps. Um, there's no shortage. I mean, every year there's probably hundreds of books published on Hitler. I mean, there's just a great interest. There's a consensus on Germany's responsibility for World War II and on condemning the crimes that Germany committed. And Germany is a much better nation today because of it. You know, Russia also committed many crimes. It invaded its neighbors. It, it killed millions of people. It engaged in, you know, purges. Uh, it sent people to gulags. Um, and yet there's no real, uh, there's no equivalent understanding of this history uh, as there is in Germany. And I would argue that, you know, had Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, gone through the same process that Germany went through in understanding its history, then I don't think we would be having the problems that we have today with, with Russia. When I read the communique from the G7, I was struck by the very direct language about Russia and particularly the decision to explicitly blame Russia for the use of nerve agent in the UK, mm -hmm. the decision to talk again about Crimea and about Ukraine. 
I wonder if you can tell our listeners who have not read your book about why some of those sticking points are going to matter so much with Vladimir Putin. Russia has basically, under Vladimir Putin, has, has been on a tear recently. I mentioned earlier, you know, Crimea, which was a, a fundamental violation of the post-war security order, um, but also the use of a, of a nerve agent on British soil to try to poison and kill a Russian double agent was also a grave breach of, you know, international law and sort of, you know, basic uh, understandings and relationships between countries. You don't do something like that. By the way, they've done this before in Britain. There was a, a another former uh, FSB uh, defector, Alexander Lit- Litvinenko, who they actually did kill in 2005. And there have been numerous other strange unsolved murders of Russians in Britain that are probably attributable to, to Russia. Um, and it's important that there be unity on this because there's currently, you know, on the communique that you mentioned, because there's currently, uh, and, I, and I foresee over the coming years, there are potential cracks in the transatlantic, you know, unity on resisting Russian aggression. There's this new government in Italy, which uh, has a populist right wing and a populist left wing party in coalition. It's the first, you know, sort of all populist government, you could say, in Europe. Both of these parties have called for dropping the sanctions against Russia, which have been put in place since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea. There are, you know, Hungary, the government there is not happy with the sanctions, but also there's a left-wing government in Greece that is not happy with the sanctions. Chancellor Merkel uh, has done a very good job in sort of keeping the unity of the West on this. Every six months, these sanctions come up for renewal, but there's there are potential uh, cracks in the unity of the West, and it's so important important that these sanctions stay on as long as Russia behaves the way it does. Because like I said before, you know, we, we, were, we, we decided as the civilized world quite a while ago that border disputes uh, in Europe would no longer be settled by force. And that is that there are two countries that don't, you know, have a d- disagreement about a border that they would negotiate it. And that these are precisely the sorts of problems that led to, to World War. I mean, that's what led to World War One. That's, that's what led to World War Two, And it's why we had a Cold War. We, had a we had a uh, an iron curtain cutting Europe in half, and so after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the in the end of the Cold War, we decided that if there are any border disputes, countries solve them diplomatically. And Russia fundamentally violated that when it annexed uh, Crimea. And so as long as Russia remains in possession of Crimea, it cannot be treated like a normal country. It has to be punished. And so we've done that in the form of sanctions. And it's very important that those sanctions stay in place. Um, until Russia decides that it wants to uh, behave once again like a law-abiding, normal country. Which matters, as you point out in the book, because I, I loved your description that this the Crimea move effectively gave Russia veto power over other nations considering yes. aligning themselves with Western countries. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is... Um, Look, uh, what led to the annexation of Crimea, the, U- the uh, Ukrainian government, uh, the president, who was a very corrupt pro-Russian guy, oligarch, uh, had promised to sign an agreement with the EU that would open up uh, trade with the EU. Uh, and at the last minute, he was he was basically, Putin called him up on the phone and ordered him not to sign this agreement. He reneged on the agreement, he had these massive protests in the in the streets. And so we've, this is an example again, once again, of, of Russia acting like it is the Soviet Union and insisting that it have a veto over the foreign policy and security decisions of independent sovereign countries. And that is something that, that is a, a, a means of behaving, a way of behaving 
that, you know, you might have been able to get away with that in the 20th century. But when the end of the Cold War happened and we had the collapse of the Soviet Union, that that way of behaving um, was rendered illegitimate. Okay, and that, you know, the Soviet Union had been in possession, had basically been in control of all of Eastern Europe. These these, these were puppet states in, in Poland and the Baltic states and Czechoslovakia. They were basically living under the thumb uh, of Russian imperialism. And we had a, thankfully, we had a peaceful, you know, bottom-up, people-powered uh, revolutions in all these countries, and the Soviet Union peacefully collapsed. And Russia agreed to respect the sovereignty of these countries. And, and now it's been, and over the past couple of years, I mean, you can really trace it back to Georgia in 2008, uh, when, it, when it invaded and still occupies Georgia. But, you know, Russia is behaving once again like the Soviet Union, and, and, it, and it has not come to terms with the fact that, you know, if, if there's a country in the periphery uh, of, of Russia that perhaps used to, be, used to be part of the Soviet Union, if it wants to move in a Western direction, uh, that it should have the ability to do so. And, you know, and rather, and the problem with, with the Russians is that they're not asking themselves, well, what is it maybe about the way that we're behaving as Russia? that makes our neighbors so afraid of us and hate us so much that they want to go join NATO or they want to join the EU. Maybe we should behave in a way that doesn't scare them like that. They, they, the Russians never ask that question. It's always, well, you know, everybody hates us. What's wrong with everybody? That's sort of their attitude. Um, and, that's, and that's frankly why we have the problems that we have with uh, Russia. Well, and I think a concerning thing about your book is that that attitude that it's everybody else's fault and we need to double down on our nationalism is becoming more pervasive, right? I mean, that's sort of the the end of Europe in and of itself if everyone becomes nationalist in an unhealthy way. Yeah, we can even see that in this country too with with Donald Trump and uh, uh, there's there, there's the foreign policy of Donald Trump is sort of could be boiled down to, uh, he was just quoted in the Atlantic. There was a foreign policy advisor to the president basically saying, we're America, bitch. That's our foreign policy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hate to be so crude and I hope you, your reader, your listeners won't be offended, but there is this sort of, you know, F you, you know, giving a finger to the world sort of attitude um, that seems to be very popular these days, not just in the United States, but in Russia, in Britain with Brexit. Uh, and there are all these sorts of populist parties around the world that are uh, embracing this this sort of attitude in politics. And I think with Trump, it seems so divorced from any lessons from history. So I mentioned on our most recent episode, your criticism of the Obama administration's effort to reset relations with Russia, because the Obama administration failed to understand that it was getting played, right, that they were yeah. investing substantively, and that what Putin was doing was increasing his domestic standing. And it's impossible for me not to draw a parallel with Kim Jong-un right now. So I would love to know what your thoughts are on this, the, you know, 45 minute ish summit that just took place and what came out of it. Um, it's hard for me. I'm not, I'm not really a North Korea expert, but I have to say just the optics are very bad. I mean, um, the way that the president talked about his counterpart, you know, describing him as a great guy and who, you know, who's, who's doing a great job and running his country. Um, it's just so, you know, wrong. Um, and this is a man who's running a slave state. I mean, it really is the worst country on earth. And he is probably, and he is the most repressive leader on earth. And, and, you know, I'm not speaking out against diplomacies, you know, if there's nothing inherently wrong with holding a summit with the leader of North Korea, provided you have a strategy about what you're going to get, but there's no need to lavish praise on the man. And that can only 
really send an awful signal to the um, to the people of North Korea. The conditions creating this summit reminded me of a description of Putin from your book about how he tends to escalate in order to de-escalate. And I, I wonder if that is just a character, is that a hardwired character trait of Donald Trump? Because I, I could say that he's done that in the entertainment industry for a long time, or if he's actually kind of mimicking Putin. I mean, he has complimented him so much, but, yeah. but I do feel like Trump said, okay, we're going to bring the fire and fury. Uh, and now I'm going to calm everything down with this summit that, that has a somewhat meaningless set of conditions right. coming out of it. I'm not sure if there's a method to the madness with Donald Trump. I'm not, I'm not really sure if he has some kind of grand strategic uh, you know, plan behind the way he's behaving. And even if he did, um, I wouldn't think that, you know, the, the, the tactics that you use in the worlds of reality TV and entertainment and real estate um, are not necessarily applicable to the world of geopolitics. And, you know, there's one element that's missing uh, um, from television and real estate that should matter in geopolitics, and that's values. I mean, that's, you know, the fact that we believe in certain values and that we shouldn't sacrifice those values just to make a quick buck. So whether it's, you know, human rights, whether it's, um, you know, the independence of the media, whether it's respect for religious pluralism, I mean, these are all things that the United States is supposed to stand for. And it's it's worrying to have a president who really just, you know, seems to have no appreciation for that whatsoever. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today. 
with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So one thing I want to ask you about before we conclude is is sort of an event that is in the recent past that is going to have long-term historical ramifications. You devote a good amount of time to Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks and Russia's influence and the impact on Germany and the United States. And I wonder if you could offer um, a preview or a thumbnail to our listeners about that event and how, as Americans, we ought to be understanding that uh, beyond perhaps the influence of WikiLeaks in the 2016 election? I mean, my, you know, I was always skeptical of Edward Snowden from the very beginning because, you know, he wound, he, he, he emerged publicly in China, okay, in communist China, and then wound up where he remains in Russia. Uh, these are two of America's greatest adversaries. And if he were really the American patriot that he claims to be, he would face justice in America. He would he would make his case before his fellow American citizens. I mean, there's all these comparisons made between him and Daniel Ellsberg, you know, the man who uh, leaked the, the Pentagon Papers. Daniel Ellsberg didn't, you know, flee to so the Soviet Union or Cuba, as many people did, um, who claimed to be dissidents at the time. He stayed and he faced the music. And you know what? He was vindicated by the justice system. And if Edward Snowden was really the the... The, the patriot that he claims to be, and not, as I suspect, a Russian agent, um, whether or not he you know, was always a Russian agent from the beginning, whether he was an, un, an unwitting Russian agent, uh, he certainly has been a Russian agent from the moment he stepped foot in Moscow. Um, so this is just putting aside whatever you think about the material that he released. Furthermore, there's a difference between releasing material uh, showing American government surveillance on U.S. citizens, which is something that does concern U.S. citizens and should absolutely be under scrutiny and oversight by our elected representatives. There's a difference between releasing that sort of information publicly, which I think can be justified in certain extreme cases. And there's a complete and utter um, other uh, story when you start releasing information about American espionage activities overseas, because there's no law that says the United States can't spy on foreign citizens. I'm sorry, that's what the CIA does. Okay, and so he started releasing all this information about our espionage operations all around the world, in particular in Europe, and in particular in Germany, um, where it would have a 
where where he if he, if he didn't know it would have that that effect certainly his handlers in the russian intelligence services do and i, and I get into detail on this in the book um he did great damage to the transatlantic relationship he did great damage to the u.s german relationship um and all that activity in my opinion made him a traitor uh you know it's, it's one thing to release information exposing surveillance practices of the nsa on american citizens because that's up for debate that's potentially could be civil rights violation we don't know and perhaps in theory mr snowden could be applauded for doing that but the minute you start releasing uh top secret information about what america is doing overseas it's espionage activities overseas you're, you're entering a completely different territory and i think that distinction is a helpful way to come back to what I saw as an animating theme throughout your book, which is the, the calibration of patriotism, right? A, a healthy sense of country instead of a national extreme on one hand and this sort of free-for-all world without borders on another hand. I'm just wondering if that's a, a, a fair way to distill p- part of what you're trying to say, that, that, we need, that we need a healthy sense of country. Yeah. In order to preserve the peace and prosperity that Europe and the United States have enjoyed for the past 75 years. Um, But but that is in between the sort of nationalistic forces that are on the rise right right now and the Snowden worldview. Yes. I absolutely think that there is a uh, there's such a thing as a a healthy nationalism. Nationalism isn't the word. uh, It it has such negative connotations and it's almost inherently means, you know, uh, something bad. It means. I, I prefer patriotism. I mean, nationalism implies that you you hate other countries or you think that your country is superior to other countries and then you want to hurt other countries. I think patriotism is better. It means a love of country. And I think that there's absolutely um, a space for, um, you know, caring more about your fellow citizens um, than you would, you know, citizens of another country. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you care more about you know your neighbors because you know your neighbors than you do than you do people in another town or another state. Um, where it gets problematic is you know are there politicians or political forces are they whipping up you know those feelings and are they manipulating them and and and, and exploiting them in an unhealthy way? Um, I think that's the difference between you know a healthy patriotism that wants to cooperate with other countries, cooperate with other peoples. In, in solving problems that we all face together. Um, that's the difference between that. That's what I would call, you know, a patriotism, an enlightened patriotism, um, versus nationalism, which thinks that, you know, uh, that the own that 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 other countries, other communities can only do us harm. Um, and that and that the world is a zero sum game, right? And that only um, there's only one winner and everyone else has to be a loser. And that's unfortunately I think how Donald Trump sees the world. He doesn't understand that actually um, you know, the, a trade deficit isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily the end of the world. Um, he, he, he doesn't understand that, you know, actually the United States um, having military bases all over the world, yes, it might, it, might cost us, um, it might cost us money, but you know what? It's kept the peace and it's avoided, it's avoided things that would cost us far more, not only in money, but in lives. Um, and that two countries can mutually benefit Right. So that, you know, we can have a We can have a robust trading relationship with Germany and we might even have a trade deficit. But maybe that's good for both of us, because maybe Americans prefer Mercedes and and uh, BMW cars and, and the Germans get our money for it. And maybe that's maybe that's a good thing. Um, so I, 
this is this is this is a sort of a, a view of the world that that, that I, I think eludes the president. Well, it is well fleshed out in the end of Europe, dictators, demagogues, and the coming dark age, which I absolutely loved. I've marked up every page. Before you go, will you please share? This has nothing to do with the book, but will you please share with us the story of your epic appearance on RT? Well, it sort of does have something you could you could maybe tie it to the book. So, in in, in the summer of 2013, right after uh, the Russian Duma passed a law that prohibited any sort of um, speech that could be construed as uh, supporting homosexuality, uh, uh, they 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 banned this. I was invited on RT, formerly Russia Today, to discuss a completely different topic. It was a, a Chelsea Manning. Uh, we were talking about Edward Snowden earlier. Uh, Chelsea Manning, who at the time was still Bradley, had uh, was being sentenced to prison that day. And I had written some critical things of, of her. And so I was invited by RT to talk about this. And I was in Sweden on vacation. And I agreed to do it. And I found a pair of rainbow suspenders. I spent the entire day in Stockholm trying to find some sort of rainbow gay paraphernalia. I, at the last minute, I found these suspenders at a, um, at a thrift shop, believe it or not. Uh, so I was invited on the show. Uh, they asked me for my opinion of Chelsea Manning, and I decided to basically hijack the program and started denouncing the anti-gay law, denouncing homophobia in Russia. Uh, I was d- denounced um, Vladimir Putin. I denounced his crackdown on journalists. I asked the the host and her colleagues how she could even call herself themselves journalists, how they could sleep at night, knowing what her uh, her paymaster Vladimir Putin and his regime, the way that they treat actual journalists, uh, murdering them, imprisoning them. Uh, and this went on for about two minutes. I'm surprised they actually let me on for so long. We had a it was a pretty heated moment. You can. Your listeners can can certainly watch it. And they cut me off. They cut my transmission off. Uh, and then they actually, uh, halfway to the airport in Stockholm, they, believe it or not, they uh, they canceled the car service. But fortunately, the driver was a very friendly man who understood that I needed to catch a plane. And he, he gave me a free ride, which was very nice of him. Well, I will link the video in the show notes. It's great. The suspenders are fantastic. And I, I thought that it was a, a very brave thing that you did. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Pedoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast Player and follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.